0: Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Here's a surprise for you. It's possible that sheep and beef farms could already be net carbon neutral in New Zealand. According to a new report, sheep and beef farms hold 17% of New Zealand's forests, or more technically, 17% of New Zealand's woody vegetation. I love that term, woody vegetation. Um, On the most generous estimates, that vegetation could be sequestering more greenhouse gases than all our dry stock herds are emitting. Even at the least generous estimate, the gap is small, meaning an increase in Planting or a small decrease in stock numbers could result in a net zero or even better net positive position. That's great news. Or is it? The study, while conducted by the Auckland University of Technology, was funded by the farming lobby Beef and Lamb. And I guess they would say that. But even if it is true, it says nothing about the bigger bovine problem in the room, the dairy industry, of which many of those sheep and beef farms have been converted into. Plus there's still the ongoing issues of nitrate runoff, winter grazing, excess water use and so on. Anyway, with me to discuss the study, and no doubt slap me for being so negative, is one of the report's authors, Dr. Bradley Case, Senior Lecturer in Applied Ecology at AUT. And we're also joined by Dr. David Hall, also of AUT, who has co-authored a related report on the carbon sequestration potential of our native forests, which we'll discuss very soon. The listeners might be familiar with David's dulcet tones. He's been on the show before, so welcome back, David. Cheers. And welcome to the show. First time caller, Brad Case, uh, Dr. Brad Case, no less. Um, so, uh, that was such a long-winded introduction. Brad, would you put me straight, were you free to come to your own independent conclusions about
1: this study into sheep and beef farms? Uh, yeah, a- absolutely. Um, this was a uh, an independent scientific study. Um, beef and lamb commissioned me to do it, that's true, but uh, ultimately... Uh, it was myself and uh, Catherine Ryan who went away, did the work over about a year and a half, probably. We did have some interim discussions with Beef and Lamb as the work, um, uh, I guess, progressed. But ultimately, uh, it was scientifically assessed by a couple independent scientists as well. So yeah, it's it's scientifically independent and robust.
0: Great. And
1: you didn't feel
0: pressure to come to a particular conclusion?
1: Um, uh, no n- not at all i mean there there were definitely some rigorous um conversations back and forth between myself and uh, and beef and lamb uh-huh. uh but uh you know ultimately I have my scientific integrity to, yeah. to maintain so i i I made sure that um all the results were evidence-based, and um, and that was the main objective.
0: Great. All right. Well, yeah. tell us about the the study and and about the conclusions. You know, one of the great things about being a journalist is you can go straight to the conclusion. You don't have to do all the hard yards. But what you've okay. done. But can you summarise
1: the what you found? Yeah. Sure. So, um, basically, so beef and lamb New Zealand wanted to know essentially where they stood in terms of uh, carbon neutrality. And uh, essentially, at the, at the sheep and beef sector scale, we're talking about a large part of the country, so it's about 40% of New Zealand. And, uh, and so to get at that, we really needed to know something about two sides of the equation, right? So we need to know about emissions, and we needed to know about sequestration. And so those are the two opposing forces, I guess, and, and that's where the balance comes in. So we did a bunch of GIS or geographic information systems mapping and and analysis uh, to get at where the vegetation is. So that's the the sequestration bit. And then we also got some figures from MPI around um, the emissions side of that equation. And and then we did the calculations and and put those together. And so Mm. the results basically showed that... um, I should say, I guess, the caveat there is that we, we recognize that there was a lot of uncertainty in, uh, in the data, particularly on the sequestration side. And that's simply because there's not a lot of um, information about how our vegetation sequesters carbon uh, in terms of the rates at which they do this. And so we went to the literature and found that actually there's a lot of variability out there in terms of the figures for sequestration rates. And so, to account for that uncertainty, we decided to to go with a, sort of a conservative estimate end mm-hmm. of the of the equation, and, and and an optimistic kind of end. Yeah. Uh, and so that's where the. The range in the uh, offset value came from. So th- the results showed uh, that on the conservative end, uh, the sector was offsetting about 63% of their emissions, and on the more optimistic end, they were more than offsetting all of their emissions. So somewhere in between is probably where the answer sits. But uh, I just wanted to reiterate that you know it's an uncertain kind of science still because of the data. Lack uh, that's
0: like and is the uncertainty also just the uh, uh, quantifying exactly how much land is in forestry and in, in woody vegetation? Or, or is it actually quite clear from GIS and, and other maps uh, just how much is
1: in vegetation? Yeah, so this is, um, I guess, a scale issue, I suppose, uh, you know, if I use a, an ecological term. And so at, at the broad scale, we have some national data sets that tell us you know, fairly well where the vegetation is um, uh, broadly across the country and something about what type of vegetation that is. Now, you may go and visit those areas, say, you know, in person, and it may turn out that it's not quite what the uh, the data we're telling you. And so this is the the disparity between the, the sort of the farm scale information we have about what's out there. Versus the the broad national scale Uh type of data. Did did you have a
0: sense of how disparate that is? Yeah, well, we did a
1: little little bit of a case study analysis on that, and uh, where we used some finer scale um, imagery, so aerial imagery, to see if we could map out the vegetation in more detail Uh and in, in better accuracy across. A farm area. And in fact, yeah, it it does pick up on a lot more of the small bits of vegetation that are out there. So there's still a lot that's unaccounted for. But, you know, on the whole, if we look at it as a sector analysis, I think we're getting at the the bulk of, of what's out there.
0: And a lot of this vegetation, I'm assuming, is a result of legislation in the past that requires farmers to fence off and protect stands of native bush. Would that be right? Um. I well, what proportion? What maybe it's a better way of asking you. Know, what proportion was a native versus exotic?
1: So uh, yeah. So about seventy-six or seventy-seven percent of the woody vegetation, which is what we're talking about here, was native of some sort, and a little bit less than a quarter was exotic of okay. some sort. Great. So, um, and I would say that there's probably a lot of factors that might contribute to you know where we where we're at right now in terms terms of vegetation. But largely, just based on other research that we've done over the past few years, it's clear that um, sheep and beef farmers at least really value their vegetation on farms. And so they're actually quite reticent to get rid of it mostly. And uh, there's not been a lot of clearing, not as much as what you might think or conversion, say, uh, in recent years anyway. So they, they just really don't know so much what to do to manage it so that's the issue uh, they're really keen to keep it for their future generations um, it, that's my, my impression anyway okay and, great uh, yeah
0: sorry right, well we're going to come back to sort of the, the valuing of it and the use of it and, and we'll especially tap into David yeah. um, uh, whose brain will be fizzing now about responses I'm sure but I just want a question about um, methane because methane is obviously the gas you know that we're concerned about for agriculture um, and that is not absorbed by trees. So how do you go from, uh, you know, in, in what way do forests sequester or offset methane emissions?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, methane is a greenhouse gas. And, uh, you know, it's one of the two big greenhouse gases that we look at in the agricultural sector, nitrous oxide being the other one. um, Nitrous oxide as a result of fertilizer use, right? Fertilizer and um, and dung deposition and things like that. Okay. Yeah. So, and then the methane comes from belching and and things like that of of the livestock. So that's the emission side, right? Uh, so you're right. The vegetation doesn't sequester methane, uh, but it sequesters CO2 via uh, photosynthesis. So basically, we're looking at the broad scale balance between what's what gets emitted, and then what gets sequestered via, you know, in CO2 terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we talk about uh, carbon. Uh, accounting that's really what we're talking about.
0: It's carbon equivalent accounting, isn't it? Correct. But, you know that little e gets slipped in there and it's kind of a mouthful to say, so we just yes. ignore it, right? Yep. Technically, what happens to the methane when it disappears into the atmosphere? Uh,
1: well, I mean all of these gases uh, have a residency time in the atmosphere, uh, and it all they also all have uh, a particular ability to absorb energy that's reflected up uh, from the earth and that's what causes the greenhouse effect. So eventually, you know, they dissipate but, you know, over many, many, many years so hundreds of years in some cases.
0: So the question of methane continues, doesn't it? Which is why we really need to resolve this this issue of um, belching cows and, uh, you know, what can we do with, it, it's effectively a kind of question of stomachs, I believe, um, yes. you know, how are we going to resolve that? But that's let, probably another question for another day and another scientist, I suspect. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> um, I, I, you you were cautiously optimistic, which, uh, you know, is um, as, about as enthusiastic as a scientist would get. Um, why? Why were you cautiously optimistic?
1: Well, I I add the uh, the term cautiously in there simply because there's a lot of uncertainties, like I said, around uh, a lot of the things that we we've quantified to go into this equation. So, you know, overall we've got that kind of 90% offset in the mid range of of the thing, the range that we quantified. Um, and so that's that's good news so it means that we're getting close potentially to uh, offsetting uh, the emissions that are occurring out there in this sector right now but you know, adding in that range of uncertainty, we still have work to do to really quantify it to to a greater level, mm. level of certainty. Mm. Uh,
0: and, yep. and ultimately get to a net positive position, right? Where we we you know we're we're actually Definitely. soaking up, and this yep. is
1: where we need to be talking and thinking from yep. here on. Yep. David, um,
0: I, I better put my um, glasses on to read this next, bit because to introduce you, um, this is a good time to bring in you, Dr. David Hall. Um, you were a contributing author to uh, and in your a, uh, obviously a colleague of Brad's um, but you're a contributing author to another recent report, this time by the Aotearoa Circle, and the report's called Native Forests Resetting the Balance. I think that you are a co-author and you're on the on one of the governance committees, I think. Is that right?
2: Yeah, the Technical Working Group for the yeah. Biodiversity Workstream.
0: Okay, well do you uh, share Brad's uh, sense of optimism about uh, you know the findings of this, of his report?
2: Yeah, I, it doesn't surprise me in a way. Um, you know, we know that sheep and beef farms in particular um, have a lot of mixed use and, you know, there's woodlots on there but also areas of regeneration. So it was just a matter of getting the numbers. Um, as, as for the optimism, I mean, you know, Brad is, Brad is the, the scientist here and I'm the policy wonk, so I take that perspective. Um and you know, carbon neutrality is a is a term of art that comes really from policy much more than um, science. You know, it's defined by the scientific metrics that it uses, but it's necessarily a product of policy decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I guess it it slightly reminds me of that of that joke. You know, that someone's lost in an Ireland and they uh, turn up to a town and they're like, you know, can I? How do I get to Dublin? And the old man says well, I wouldn't start from here. You know, and, um, and, and the idea of carbon neutrality is a bit like that. You know, where do we start? And, and um, when we talk about carbon neutrality in the perspective of, you know, our international obligations and the emissions trading scheme, you know, it starts from a 1990 baseline. And it has particular definitions around what forest are, Um, sorry, what forest is, um, the forest definition. So according to these definitions, forest in New Zealand needs to be larger than one hectare. It needs to be wider than 30 metres at any point. It needs to have trees of five metres or higher. needs to have canopy cover of 30% or more. Um, And all of this you know restricts what is counted as forest and what is counted in the ETS and also the New Zealand greenhouse gas inventory and so a lot of the forest which has been measured uh, by Brad here is is not being counted by that policy framework He's starting from a different place, um, and uh-huh. he, you know that's why the joke is relevant here. You know, if we if we if we stop worrying about these forest definitions and the, and the 1990 baseline, then we can start to incorporate these kinds of forests which are neglected by the ETS um, and and the the current metrics we have. And and this is this is one of the this is the thorny spot really for for this discussion is that a lot of that forest which you know, in a scientific sense, is offsetting um, the greenhouse gas emissions created by stock and fertilizer use and so on, Um, it's not recognized by our policy framework and it's also therefore not um, supported by some of the policy frameworks we have in place like the ETS. Um, So the Emissions Trading Scheme, does monetize carbon sequestration for forests that meets the forest definition but for the forest that doesn't which includes a lot of the forest which Mm -hmm. Brad is talking about Mm -hmm. which was planted before 1990 or isn't large enough to meet that forest definition for if it's riparian margins you know along riverways it's not often going to have that width (laughs) Um, if it's in gullies it might not have the size Um, and so so it's there, but it's not being counted
0: in any official. It is, and it's also kind of slipping
2: way. through um, the sorts of financial incentives that we've set up to support afforestation, yes. um, because you can't register it into the emissions trading scheme, and you can't, therefore. Um, Accrue the carbon credits that you uh-huh. can then sell on for a profit. This is not an unfamiliar problem. There are lots of parts of the
0: economy that are not counted but are real. I'm thinking for, you know, for instance of. I I don't know, the work of um, housekeepers, you know, our mums that, you know, possibly didn't work in an official way, but their work was still real. It required hours. If it was properly counted, we would have quite a different kind of economy. Um, Similar with care workers, I suppose, there's a lot of people that are caring for their family members and um, elderly and so on that just disappear out of the... It's, so that's kind of what you're saying is there's this there's the reality of well, these forests, woody vegetation doing their job that are just don't fit into the current definitions. And so your report, the RTO Circle report, I should say, well, it's not your report, but it's from the RTO Circle, That that is saying that we need to change then some of these policy settings to capture that, right?
2: That's right, yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is the boundary of production and, you know, especially when we think about GDP... Uh, gross domestic product, these things like domestic work fall outside of that, they're not counted um, and they're not included as part of the way we recognise the economy and there yeah. is analogous, if not homologous, problems in, in environmental economics and yeah. and you know the application of the emissions trading scheme is similar in this regard that it's not recognising yeah. yeah, these yeah, kinds of yeah. environmental value. And that was um, the starting point for the Aotearoa Circle report was that it was recognising that companies wanted to be offsetting some of their emissions and wanted to be contributing to some of the problems that we're facing um, as a nation in regards to climate change and biodiversity loss. Um, But there was a reluctance to be involved in um, offsetting projects you know which which may be misaligned with those sorts of objectives. I mean, mm-hmm. specifically around um, you know permanent pine forests. A lot of companies feel that there's a reputational risk to be involved in these projects because they don't have social license, and so they're looking for options here. And they were looking for. Ways that they might um, put that investment into native forest rather than um, exotic forest, because they felt that their customers expected that of them. Yeah. What What is the
0: issue with native forest bread with being included in the ETS? Because as I understand it, that at the moment, a lot of native forest is not included, right? And so, so what what holds it back? There's some of this size and scale issue that um, David just talked about. Well, what else would restrict? farmer from being able to claim
1: credits for standard native forest? Yeah, well, um, actually, you know, um, being eligible for the ETS is somewhat complex in terms of what you have to show. And mainly for native forest, it's the fact that most of it's been established prior to 1990, prior to that threshold. Uh So, you know, it was, it regenerated at some point back, you know, decades ago. Uh, or has been there forever, um, let's say. Um,
0: Why so, does that 1990 benchmark exist? What,
2: what's it for? It's essentially the starting point of the Kyoto Protocol, uh-huh. which was the first international, you know, the foundational international agreement right. on Um climate action and doing something about climate mitigation. So they just had to choose a starting point by it's, which... We're back to Ireland now. We,
0: where are we going to start? Well, let's start here. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, and that's, and right. that's
2: why that, that, that joke seems to work in this instance. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, they just had to pick a point in time. And obviously there's questions around whether that's fair because, you know, especially if we're comparing developed and developing countries, they're in different parts of the economic development process and it's potentially unfair for those that countries that haven't done all their emitting on a, on a and through through the process of uh-huh. industrialization. Okay. So that's the first well at least one one maybe not the
0: first, but that, that's one restriction, this nineteen ninety date. What what else stops it?
1: Well just around that as well, it's uh, you know a matter of being able to prove that uh, a block of regenerating land has uh, regenerated after 1990 legitimately, so um, and that requires having some sort of imagery record of what uh-huh. was there and at that time and all that kind of stuff. So or a record of you know plots or something on the ground uh-huh. that that shows you that in fact that's the case. And then then there are all those other criteria that David mentioned, like you know it has to meet a particular canopy closure density and um, you know particular heights and so. Um, you know, when you add up all of those things together, a lot of our native pieces of vegetation out there don't meet one or more of those criteria, I guess.
0: Yeah. But they are actually doing the work of, of, of acting as carbon sinks. Yep. Uh-huh.
1: And uh, in some cases quite well, like especially our early successional vegetation like monica and conica and, and some of huh. those uh, native shrubs, uh, they contribute quite a lot. Yep.
2: Although, although to to your point, they are doing the job of sequestering carbon, but they are doing it much, much slower generally than yes, exotics. That's um, true. You know, as a general rule, natives are probably sequestering. What well, exotics are, such as pine, are sequestering carbon at th- three or four times higher mm-hmm. than. Um, yeah. Than, than native trees, and that may even be slower in in high altitudes or or, yes. or or colder climates and so on. And so, this is the other aspect of the emissions trading scheme, and its relationship to exotic versus or fast-growing trees and slow-growing trees is that. Um, they, don't, they just don't earn as much money, and so, mm. and so. Mm. Um, well, there is a, there's a, there are a couple of other issues that I
0: uh, I imagine, and um, you know, put me right. But given the um, length of time it takes to grow native versus exotic, am I right in thinking that a cap of fifty years exists on um, that after fifty years an exotic a forest is no longer deemed as being um, sequestering? Am I right in thinking that?
2: I think that would be a, a major oversimplification of, um, of of forest dynamics. I mean, I think. I mean, in terms of the ETS
0: and, and credits, there is a, 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 a kind of a time out of 50, 50 years, right? And but it, but it takes 80 years for a New Zealand native forest to mature. So
2: the, the new permanent forest category um, is, is in 50-year stints, and then you get to make a decision as to whether to uh-huh. keep the land use um, as forest. I okay. think that might be what you're referring to. But yeah. I mean, as a matter of whether a f- forest sequesters... Absolutely, they start slowing down at some point and plateauing, um, but that will change depending on what kind of forests, um, what kind of species are in there, mm-hmm. the, the, the location of the forest and so on. Um, there's a huge amount of factors in there. Turns out
0: nature's really complex. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, David, when you um, have done this analysis, was it clear what, you were asking for in terms of change to the emissions trading scheme or change to other kind of uh, policy settings?
2: Well, the 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 key starting point from the the Aotearoa circle, the, sorry, the key conclusion really was that the ETS is going to be very difficult to revise to get those native forest outcomes um, because you know, it, if if you, you you might not want to start from here to get to your destination, but but that starting point is is really locked in by um, the nature of the international frameworks, the UNFCCC, C. You know, New Zealand can't easily go back and renegotiate these sorts of things. And uh-huh. if it if it was to try, it would. Very likely be seen to be um, trying to evade its responsibilities because it would be seen to be trying to include you know this carbon which brad 's analysis is recognizing um, as a matter of scientific fact but isn 't being recognized mm-hmm. by our current framework, mm-hmm. so it would you know bring in all of this carbon and and make our job easier um, from a decarbonization perspective so it 'd be a hard thing to try and negotiate at the international level when everyone's mm-hmm. actually looking to each other to try and up their game. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so it would make it very difficult and that's why in the Aotearoa Circle report we landed on the idea of a biodiversity payment. Uh, a a payment system which can complement the ETS but isn't restricted by those same agreements um, and isn't restricted by those same frameworks. And Mm. so we could come up with a biodiversity payment scheme which does recognise patches of forest which are smaller than um, what the forest definition for the emissions trading scheme. So it could include those riparian plantings. It could include... um, agroforestry you know with much sparsely more, more sparsely planted trees and, mm-hmm. and pastures and so on mm-hmm. um, and so that would be one way to do it and what is important about this as well is that then you're really paying for what people value about native forests, which is that biodiversity benefit. Um, you know, the emissions trading scheme is really just rewarding carbon sequestration value. It just is indifferent to the other sorts of considerations that um, people bring to forestry. And actually, that's much more aligned, as, as Brad um Mentioned it in, in passing that you know a lot of landowners really do care about biodiversity issues, and yeah. they really care about those intergenerational issues, and they want to leave a good legacy and to be good stewards of the land. You know there is a land ethic there, mm. um, which is strongly held, and there's a lot of aspirations to plant more native trees, but there just aren't the policy tools there to support and enable and to enhance the capabilities of landowners to plant. Those trees, and if they're looking to the policy tools they have around, you know, the emissions trading scheme is the obvious one. And just because of the structure of it, it, it makes pine trees or eucalyptus or, or other fast growing exotics the obvious choice. Yes. And actually, Manuka as well, you know, because Manuka does have those quick. Um, Growth rates, and mm. so you know, we're seeing that in the way that the One Billion Trees program has played out. That you know, there is a there is been an upturn okay. in, in manuka planting.
0: That's interesting. And um,
2: manuka is of, often used as a. a, a a kind of initial
0: um, establishment phase for uh, regenerating forest, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. So you could imagine a perfect scenario has kind of a layered uh, ETS incentive for Manuka, then biodiversity credits come on top as the as the forest regenerates.
2: Yeah, but that that has to be built into the management of the site because Manuka and Kauri can be quite a closed, thick, dense canopy, and it can. Um, it's it's not necessarily conducive to uh-huh. to um, you know mixed regeneration in that sense you would you may need to go in there and act actually actively management manage it in that way by cutting out some trees and planting another species um, in the light wells and so you know this relates to a project that me and Brad are working on together the AUT Living Laboratories where we're working with um, Iwi and other groups around the Auckland area to try and get those um, mixed native species restoration projects working and to try and plant them in a way that that species diversity is there from the beginning, mm-hmm. that we're not just creating a monoculture of Manica, um, but actually getting that diversity um, established from the start.
0: Does the prospect of harvesting native forest for timber also act as an incentive? Is, you know, a is it legal, uh, and and b
1: is it practical? Um, I, I actually not quite sure about the legal side of it. To be honest, uh, I, I think there probably is some facility for that. Yeah, you can uh, you can farms. register an
2: intention to yeah. to harvest the hmm. native forest.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and certainly it's feasible. I mean, the, you know, I guess native harvesting was kind of removed from uh, from our plates um, a while back, uh, in general, sort of on a broad scale. But certainly, there's you know, there are other groups like Tane's Tree Tribe. Who are working to understand how you can grow forests for harvesting from native species and do that in a sustainable and uh, you know way and, and a way that's actually going to maybe even bring some income into the people who own those woodlots and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think we it just really illustrates that we need we need a whole mixed bag of of tricks and tools to put out there for people to kind of use in the way that um, best matches their their context mm. on their farms mm. and, and maybe their you know their goals and stuff. So and this is where the farm plans come into it. And there's a lot of uh, movement now to to develop uh, comprehensive farm plans and to have that kind of mandatory across the country for farmers. And that includes things like biodiversity and water quality management and carbon management and all of those things. And so, you know, and obviously the next uh, question is, like, how do we do that? What are What is it actually we're measuring and what are we reporting on? And then what do we need to do to enhance those things? And so this is where all of these, um, you know, where, where we need to be going from here, I guess.
0: Yeah. I interviewed a, a farmer last week on the show and... Um, a, very high profile and a large-scale farmer from Craigmore Farms, Forbes, Elworthy, and he expressed kind of frustration that, you know, here I am as a, he called me an an immediate urban liberal, which, uh, you know, was uh, highly offensive, um, uh, all of which is true, probably, but, uh, you know, sitting in my desk and making rules for farmers, and I understand that, right, you know, and you probably found that right out on the... Talking to farmers is yet more imposition of like you must manage your forests better. You must make a farm plan. Yep. You know, maybe there's two questions here. Like, what was the kind of appetite for for farm plans and for managing forests? You know, amongst the farmers you met, and and B, how do we reward them for their effort and not more imposition,
1: more legislation, more requirements? Mm. Well, in terms of the first bit, um, I, I think there is. Uh, coming back to um, this kind of land ethic idea. And I, I really second what David said. And I feel like most farmers are keen to do the right thing. And they have been doing lots of good things. Um, and they see the farm plan as a uh, a way to do that in kind of a logical framework. But, um, you know, they also need to need the right support to be able to do it. Mm. So this it always comes down to we want to do this but I need the support to mm. do it and whether mm. that be financial support or just even information at the right time by the right people um, and having access to that in a timely way um, is, is really important and I, I think you know They're working through that at the moment Hmm. in in the different agricultural sectors, and you know, there's going to be a lot of um, debating around how how that might play out. Yeah, Yeah.
0: David, did you get a sense that biodiversity credits could actually be a revenue stream for, and is that in your model that it's a a genuine revenue stream for farmers?
2: That's the proposition and something to explore. But all of these sorts of mechanisms ultimately rely on the willingness of some actor to pay. Someone's got to pay. Someone's got to pay. Somewhere. And, and yeah, a revenue stream, um, you know, know, that, that would absolutely be helpful because if it could... Value monetize those other aspects of forest, um, of, of native forests, then mm. it could re- as we say in the report, reset the balance but it really does depend on someone paying for those public goods um, and And who yeah. do you think that would be? Do you have so? A so you have I, a sense of I think of could, there's multiple strategies in regards to this um, you know, the obvious one is, is the government, the state um, because You know, it already has a commitment to um, restoring biodiversity and to arresting biodiversity decline. You know, that's been reconfirmed in the biodiversity strategy that was released this year. Hmm. Um, And, you know, globally, the awareness of the implications of biodiversity loss are are growing by the day. You know, I mean, there's just been this um, onslaught of reports that are pointing out... You know the risks—the risks that we are mm, exposing yeah. ourselves to by allowing. Um biodiversity to collapse um, and you know there's an, a strong argument that actually the COVID pandemic is is precisely one of those risks because you know land use change and um, people moving into wild habitats and you know potentially um, wildlife trading and so on you know contributes to the mm-hmm. it, 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 it increases the risk of these sorts of viruses um, jumping from, from animals to people so sure. so government absolutely has an interest in in addressing this and and it may well um it may well have a role there in, in making these payments, and it you know it does already. Um, you know the Jobs for Nature Fund, for instance, mm-hmm. is, a, is an example of it paying for ecosystem restoration, and there's other sorts of funds mm. of that nature. Um, but obviously, in the context of the Aotearoa circle, we were exploring the appetite for companies and businesses to play a role in that. Yeah. Potentially funding that themselves where appropriate, or co-funding um, and bringing scale and volume to the amount of funding. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, as part of that process, I asked up the front up front whether whether those companies had a commitment to paying for this sort of outcome, and they assured me that they did. Um, so, which is why I personally, well, in some ways
0: they already process. are, right? I mean, the, a lot of companies are already buying ETS credits. Um, I'm assuming that they don't really care whether they're um, ETS credits or biodiversity credits, right? In um, and, 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 and some ways, they well, – well, do they?
2: No, they do. <laughs> I mean, there, there is a crucial difference because those companies which are participants in the emissions trading scheme, they have an obligation to surrender credits um, which – uh, you know, commensurate with the surrender obligations, so they need to source substantive credits from somewhere, and um, you know the supply is going to be dominated by um, exotic forestry, um, yeah. and so, and and that's why you know still. Especially over the coming decades, Um, you know, pine forests are likely to play Mm. an important role in delivering that supply um, Mm. because, you know, native trees um, are not going to have that upfront supply. Um, They're not going to be the immediate solution to that. And so it is really um, a matter of coming up with a strategy which... um, which which strikes the best balance. You know, it's not that pine trees don't have a role. You know, we've already made that commitment that forestry plays an important role in our climate change strategy and and it's going to need to be those fast-growing species. Mm. It doesn't need to just be pine. You know, eucalypts as well grow at a very similar rate and there's other you Know other conifers that may do as well, it's mm-hmm. just a matter mm-hmm. of um, we do again, it's the right, tree, right place, right purpose, yeah, that's true. But we do do pinus
0: radiata quite well in yeah. New Zealand, don't we? And and
2: I can see the rationale. So the native species are going to play a really crucial role for getting up to that 2050 and onwards, like, and we uh-huh. need to plant them now, um, to have those really long term carbon sinks which are resilient to a changing climate, sure. And there's a lot of um you know, new analysis overseas and a lot of growing attention on the role of negative emissions technologies and the role that they play um, in delivering because basically to get to, to you know, to, to retain the global temperature at, at, at levels like 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, not only do we need to reduce emissions, we actually do need to have some negative emissions to mm-hmm. kind of manage with the mm-hmm. overshoot. Mm-hmm. And so if we plant native trees now that can deliver those sorts of benefits in the second half of the century, then that's part of a holistic strategy um, towards those sorts of um, temperatures. Yeah, that's so interesting.
0: Um, Brad, did Trees That Count come up in any of your discussions with farmers as a way of rewarding farmers for for planting and for for, uh,
1: maintaining forests on their land? Uh, I I have to say no, it it didn't. I mean, maybe David can talk more about his um, experiences with Trees That Count, but... um uh, no, it's not something that really um Uhhuh. D- David, as a
0: mechanism. where are where is tree? so Trees That Count just to explain is a program that's run by Project Crimson and it uh, it 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 links funders and enthusiasts with planters, right? And, yep. and in a managed kind of way. So it's not just kind of random planting of random things. It, yep. It's a managed program. Um, does the Trees That Plant provide a kind of clue as to how these biodiversity credits could be generated and paid for outside of government? You know, and I'm, try, I'm trying not to drive us always to a socialist solution, David, you know, where <laughs> surely the market could play a role.
2: Absolutely. I mean, Trees That count is a marketplace that, that joins... Um, landowners and tree planters and tree funders. So it could be a platform on which companies um, do, you know, contribute and invest in order to to get. Yeah. native trees planted and so it is absolutely a platform which could be used mm. for this purpose and I know that Adele has been on your show and no doubt talked about um, some of those corporate partnerships that they're developing mm. and that trees that can't can play that role yeah, but it's just a matter of upscaling things um, mm. and and getting that volume that is required. And and one of the key things is you know it is a voluntary marketplace, so yes. so companies go there for their own corporate social responsibility motives they do you know they go and contribute to initiatives like that um, because it's it's good and it's good for their story and it's good for their reputation it's not like the emissions trading scheme where government is requiring them to hand over mm-hmm. credits of this particular mm-hmm. type and the one mm-hmm. thing that has to be said for a, for a market of that nature is that you know it sorts out some of the demand problems because um, companies have been forced to pay for these it's not not a market in that kind of Natural sense where people are going to the marketplace. It's a compliance <laughs> compl- compl- thing, right? You know, yeah, it is a compliance thing. And compliance, and,
0: and thing. compliance yeah. is boring. No one's interested in compliance, <laughs> you know. Whereas, I think with trees that plant, there is a. You're right. There's a voluntary aspect to it, but there's also this emotional. There's a emotional and a, a, a kind of a warmth about it about contributing, being a great corporate citizen, about engaging your staff and your customers, and a much better story for New Zealand. Yeah.
2: and I think the growth of trees that Count reflects that absolutely. Yeah. But there's also other sorts of incentives, and this is something that me and Brad are exploring in the um, A.U.T. Living Laboratories project as that develops. Is um, you know what is the role for recognising this biodiversity on farm and making that part of the package of your product as a as a farmer and as an exporter of. Um, produce um, you know there's this idea of credence attributes which is a really wonky way of of talking about the um, added value that you get for marketing your product as green and sustainable and you know certainly the carbon neutrality that um, Brad is is talking about um, it may have a different starting point to, to international climate policy mm. Mm. but there's it's absolutely can be used as part of the story for the farmers of Aotearoa, New Zealand to package up their um, mm-hmm. beef and and lamb products
0: a- absolutely. And, and I say, mean they already you know,
2: d- these are coming from a carbon neutral industry
0: Car- carbon neutral and, a, and a, a place of rich biodiversity that's well managed I mean we already package up our and beef and lamb are responsible for uh, a, an international brand I think is, is it pure nature mm-hmm. uh, I think is the name of the brand and um, that needs some proof points right yeah you know <laughs> we, we can't just keep plonking more cows on the and saying they're they're free range, exactly. Um, so these farm plans, you'd think, would play into a bigger brand New Zealand Inc.
1: kind of story. Definitely, yeah. No, there has to be that kind of chain from the, the farm scale up through to the marketing. You know, to to make it work. And, yeah. Uh, so that's where you know having the the right evidence and the right data and. Everything kind of you're know, lined up. Yes, uh, that that's the only way we're going to get to to that. I think. Yeah,
0: yep. yeah. So I think Brad, you've just secured your future as a uh, as a researcher and uh, a statistician. Excellent. And David's going to write the policy. I'll keep reporting. Um, thank you, Dr. Uh, David Hall, uh, for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Brad Case, for joining us. Um, I must say, we did invite your co-author, but she was not available. That's correct. Right. Yeah. So, um, just in case you thought this was an entire sausage fest uh, we we did um, we, we uh, are trying in addition to being biodiverse of being gender diverse and often failing on this show so thanks for joining us on the show um, if you do like the show uh, and I know at least three of you do um, please share please subscribe it makes a big difference if you subscribe and there are now uh, a reasonable number of uh, great shows that are in the archive that are still relevant and still highly compelling in my point of view so thanks for joining us uh, on This Climate Business Thanks. Cheers Vincent Thanks for listening to This Climate Business I hope you enjoyed the programme There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website thisclimatebusiness.com I'm Vincent Herringer and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show email me vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter vHeringer. That's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week. And e no hurrah.